Good morning, everyone. Yeah, Jesus is our glory. It's to him that we turn our eyes, and I pray that this morning would be another day that we have that opportunity to turn our eyes on Christ. Uh, I wonder sometimes uh, how dark it has to get sometimes for us to be really amazed and and wowed and kept in that place of of being in amazement of the love of Christ. Uh, I'm convinced that the contrast of darkness to light allows us to see more clearly the bright glory of our Savior. And if you've noticed, uh, anybody who's been in ABF or other classes that I've been teaching, I love contrasting that uh, because I think it helps my soul. Uh, I want to remember that darkness that Christ came in on that dark night and, and tore into it, tore our dark souls and brought us into the kingdom of his light. And I, I pray that even this morning we would get to that place because I think it's a place we need to go often. We are living in very bizarre times. That's an understatement. <laughs> a society that wants to deconstruct everything, a society that has already detached itself from truth, detached itself from, from God, detached itself from any sense of morality, in order to live and, and really enjoy, actually, the darkness and live in it, live out sin, rebellion against God. So much so that it's not just detachment, but it's celebrating it. It's parading it. It's putting it on display, the rebellion. I'm reminded of a verse at the end of Romans chapter 1 where it says, they not only do these things that are despicable to God, the, the outrageous sin that Romans 1 walks through, they don't not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. We're give, giving, as a society, approval to sinful, wicked ways. It's being paraded uh, before us. And I, I really believe that the church, then, is becoming increasingly a target which means for us that our devotion, our worship, our convictions that we stand on, the way that we live as light, our testimony, the way we train our children, the way we are grounding one another in the truth of God's Word, the way we love one another, the way we serve, the way we declare and live out the gospel is at a very critical, critical juncture for the church. We shudder, in fact, to think, how much further can our society degrade itself into further corruption, darkness, disarray? The world keeps seemingly getting to lower points, and, and too willingly they want to go there. I know nothing's new under the sun, but as we live in this time, it becomes very discouraging. Uh, even church leaders, even churches are moving in this direction. They're accepting these things. They're jumping on these trends and these, these pathways with a delusion that they can set aside the authority of God's Word to remain relevant to the culture, to avoid being canceled. Let's be honest. Many churches are doing things today in pragmatic ways so that they don't get canceled, so that they just simply grow in numbers while at the same time departing from the authority of God's Word just to accommodate, accommodate the world. All of this is very exhausting. It's exasperating. And this morning, we're going to come to a chapter, chapter 1 of Isaiah. Let us reason together. That's where we're going to end up. But all of this world, this society... All that we're seeing before us, as exhausting as it is, as exasperating as it is, we're going to look at a chapter that God is actually the one exhausted and exasperated, not with the nations, but with his nation, with his people. Relevant, genuine, broken people saved by grace who are always in the need of mercy, 
need to be aware because in this society, we must come with true, genuine devotion. I'm convinced that this statement that is up on the screen speaks loudly to our day, to our age. It speaks loudly out of a a text like Isaiah 1. Is that our sacrificial life of worship? Which we see play out in our daily life, in our family, in our workplace, and how we witness for Christ. Will only go as deep as my amazement in Christ. And His work of redemption that we see in the depths of the glory of the gospel. So my, my heart is that we would be saturated mind and soul with the glory of God and His grace and His mercy that is fully on display, of course, through His Son, Jesus Christ. God's work of grace through the Word, by the Spirit, would be directing us over and over and over to the Son, to the cross. And that saturation in our life would overflow into all areas of our life. This is critical at this stage for the church to come with genuine worship so that we can display genuine mess, the genuine message of the gospel. We are a broken people. We are always in need of mercy and grace. And God has provided that in His Son. This is no time to be putting on theatrics before God and before this world. They need to see genuine, broken people who go to Christ for everything. The church is at a very critical stage. John Flavel had a, a, a statement that still resonates for me. Uh, and and this, is a, this is a check your heart day. Mercies should never grow stale or look, common, or look like common things to you. This is exactly Isaiah 1. This is what led to what we're going to walk through here as we look at Isaiah 1. Mercies have become stale. They have become all too common. My need for grace has become ho-hum. The mercy of God has become, yeah, sure. And we get caught into going through ritual, rotely, vainly, empty worship, that's exactly what Isaiah chapter 1 is going to show us. This is no time for that in God's church because the onslaught is coming at us and we have to show genuine devotion, surrender to the holy of holies, God our Savior. If we're going to reach this world and put the, the gospel on display We ourselves have to come humbly and understand our need for mercy after mercy after mercy. So as we look at Isaiah 1, will you pray with me before we begin? Father, you are a holy God, set apart from sin, set apart from your creation. You are holy and righteous. We come weary, exasperated by what is going on around us, but weary and and tired. But often we also come casually. And sadly, grace and mercy does become common to us, even stale to us. And we try to look uh, maybe even at outside things other things that will thrill us or excite us, try to capture our attention. But Lord, we pray that today, I pray that you would search my heart. You would search all of our hearts. Use your word to accomplish your purpose and bring us to that place where we can, just like we just sang, turn our eyes to Jesus, the sufficient one, the one who is our glory our hope, our life. And Lord, if your mercies have become stale or or common to us, will you shake us out of that and awaken us here this morning as we look at this chapter? It's for your name's sake. It's for your name to be glorified. And as you draw us to yourself, 
Lord, may you do your work in our hearts here this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is our teacher. Shine bright today the truth of our need for you, the truth of our provision that we have in you. We thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. So just a little bit of context to the book of Isaiah. Certainly we don't have time to go into everything here, but Isaiah really is a, an incredible, incredible book, a very large book, a very large book to take in, a very large book to even piece together. When is Isaiah, who, to whom is he preaching to, seeing the whole timeline and everything, but simply it does contain an unparalleled sweep of theology, uh, all the way from creation to the new heavens and the new earth, and certainly has this flow that moves from utter destruction to glorious redemption. Many love the book of Isaiah for many comforting passages, but it does take us from that utter destruction, utter darkness to that place of comfort and that place of glorious redemption. Uh, This book's view of God is equally um, comprehensive. We see through the book of Isaiah, through the message of Isaiah, that God is holy. He is the righteous judge who decrees destruction on a rebellious people. But he is also the compassionate and loving redeemer who will not cast off a hopeless and despairing people. He is loving, compassionate, the one who brings redemption. So the message of Isaiah is an interwoven prophetic masterpiece that moves back and forth. We see that very often, back and forth between erupting prophetic messages, warnings, to very poetic prose that soothes the most broken of souls. Isaiah's ministry, of course, begins uh, in 740 BC, and just 18 years later is when Assyria, which he is up, which Israel, Judah is up against, 18 years into his ministry, Assyria would come in and, and sack Israel in 722 BC. The central theme of Isaiah, hard to discover, but simply it's probably God himself, who does all things for his Glory. His repeated message is to show that Yahweh is unsurpassed in his holiness, in his mercy, and in his redemption through the promised Messiah. Through this suffering servant, in fact, that he will introduce midway, a little bit past through the book, uh, focusing on the coming servant, the suffering servant. So everything in the message of Isaiah is really bringing us to this place where we would understand and be under the, the rule of God to show that everything must be rightly related to God as the center of all reality. If there was one verse to try to summarize this point, it would be Isaiah chapter 45, verses 21 to 23. There it says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me, and be saved. That is so key to the message of Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So coming to Isaiah chapter 1, At the heart of its message is, in fact, the heart. It's going to show rebellion, ignorance, but the rebellion and ignorance of God's people is the heart is missing. Love, devotion has been left behind. All that is left is rote, empty, ineffective rituals that on the outside looked authentic. That's very important. Looked like authentic worship but on the inside came from hearts and lips that were far from God. So chapter 1, and I'd say even through to chapter 5, really set up this beginning of Isaiah's message of doom, of despair, 
It's dark. It's discouraging. It's exasperating. More to God than to us when we even read it. So this, the uh, structure as we look through this here this morning, there's some bookends here uh, that we can see in verses uh, 2 and then in, in verse 20 where, where Isaiah says, for the Lord has spoken, and then he's going to close this section. We're going to look at verses 2 through 20 mostly. He closes that section with repeating that same phrase, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. These are the bookends. The Lord has spoken, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And within this passage, then, these, these 20 verses, there are three very important imperatives that jump out, I think, especially here to, um, I guess, yeah, I, I'm going to go but with a different outline, but I think it jumps out, especially in Hebrew, but I, I think to a Jewish reader, to a Hebrew reader, these things would jump out because of the phrases that are used. The first one is in verse 2, where the word here is used. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, in verse 2. Then, by the time he gets to verse 10, he's going to repeat those two words, but different um, directive. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God. So hear and give ear. Those are the, the two places that are marked out as, as clear imperatives. The third one will come at the end, and we're going to get there by the time it gets to verse 18, where it says, come, come now, let us reason together. So as we go through, this outline is going to um, take us through this. We're going to first of all look at God's case against Judah, verses 2 through 4. It probably extends to verse 9, but I've broken this up a little bit. Judah's condition in verses 5 through 9, Judah's worship, verses 10 through 15, and then the ending part of come and reason, a time to reason, verses 16 through 20. So we're going to look at God's case against Judah. We're going to look at their condition as described here, and then the condition of their worship, and conclude with this time to reason. So first of all, God's case or God's indictment against his sinful people here in verses 2 through 4. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Quickly, uh, Isaiah jumps to this courtroom scene, very much like Romans 3 that uh, a few months ago we walked through. This is very similar, a court case, an indictment is being brought here, and Isaiah is calling as his witnesses heaven and earth. So hear, O heaven, and give ear, O earth, summoning them as witnesses. And then he moves into these indictments that, in fact, his, his children, his own children that he reared, that he brought up, they have rebelled against him. Uh, in Hebrew, this is very emphatic. Children and they uh, are set in very emphatic ways, underlining this unthinkable characteristic of such rebellion, it's within the family. This is not just outsiders. This is, again, not talking about the nations. This is talking about actually God's people, his family, his children. And they are so unreasonable that he, he gives this image of the ox and the donkey. That they, in fact, as we know, stubborn Stubborn animals, known for their stubbornness, they in fact know their masters and they associate with them terms of trust and obedience. It's as if the ox and donkey are exhibiting more sense and more appreciation than unthinking, ungrateful Israel. Then he says in verse 4, ah, sinful nation. Again, you would think this court scene, like Romans 3, is against the nations is against the whole world, but here 
at least first of all. He starts here. He will move to that later in other chapters, but it's talking about his own people who are living in outright rebellion against their covenant God. And as he addresses God's people here, Israel, he is clearly showing how irrational it is for them to continue in this rebellion because it lays before them great devastation. By the time he gets to just verse 4, there are people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged. Estranged is the same word that is used in Exodus 30, uh, verse 9, where it's talking about an unauthorized sacrifice, a strange sacrifice, just like in Numbers 1-5, the strange fire, the unauthorized fire. God's people have become estranged as if they're strangers. Often this would be a word used in in divorce-type terms. They have become strangers in the way they live. So Isaiah starts with, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. He wants them to witness his rebellious people, God's rebellious people, their rebellious state. And then he's going to move on in verses 5 through 9 to describe the desperate condition, uh, probably talking about spiritual condition, but I think he brings this into some physical things as we move through this. He says in verses 5 through 9, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? It, it's as if all this, this condition is, is desperate. It's, it's, it's horrible. Why are you staying in it? You get knocked down and it's as if you just keep getting back up and, and continuing with your rebellion. The whole head is sick, verse 5. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Only bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Nobody's even trying to bandage you up. He moves on. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Very dismal already by the time we get to verse 4, but it only goes deeper in these verses following. Verses 5 and 6, Isaiah uses this language to describe their spiritual condition. Struck down, their whole head is sick, their whole heart is faint. Bruises and sores, raw, open wounds. And they want to stay in it. Why will you be struck down again? Why will you continue to rebel? They get knocked down, they get back up in their own rebellion. It just continues. And then even militarily, I think he says here in verse 7, They're unable to even defend themselves. They're ripe for defeat. It's kind of a preview of what's to come, or it's looking forward and and showing them what it's going to be like under this uh, army of Assyria that will come in and lay them desolate, of course. And he says, your country lies desolate, cities are scorched, foreigners devour your land. And in verse 8, even the daughter of Zion, this is, a phrase that is talking about Israel, um, talking about God's people, used several times, I think six or seven times in Isaiah, used 28 or so times in the Old Testament, particularly talking about God's people. They are like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city, as if it's already happened. Uh, These descriptions of a booth or a lodge and a field. These are talking about temporary structures that were put up in fields uh, to protect from the sun, the scorching of the sun, but maybe give some, some presence to, to guard these crops, to guard these fields, um, to watch out for thieves. But no way could they protect against an invading army. No real protection. And he says, you militarily are ripe for defeat. 
Now, verse 9 does give, and I wish we could spend more time here, verse 9 does give a, a glimmer of hope, talking about, had you not left us a few survivors, or a remnant, which carries through the, the rest of this book, talking about the remnant, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In their destruction, they would have been completely destructed if it wasn't for God saving out a few survivors. Uh, It seems even that this glimmer of hope might be dashed away because they're probably thinking as they hear these words, but at least we worship. At least we bring sacrifices. It's not so bad. And then he's going to go on in verses 10 through 15 and just destroy that. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 10. Again, this is the second imperative that jumps out. Hear the word of the Lord. First, it was the heavens and the earth need to give ear, need to hear this indictment that he puts against his people. But here he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. This would, first of all, be shocking. Utterly shocking for God's people to hear that he didn't just say, well, you would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a good illustration to use. Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped out, were destroyed because of their wickedness and their sin. You would have been like that in that. that, That's an illustration of destruction. But here he says, you're not just like them. He says you are them. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He goes on, verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen to you. Your hands are full of blood. This here shows clearly God's rejection of Judah's worship, starting, of course, with this second imperative of here, where he calls them, in fact, rulers of Sodom, people of Gomorrah. It's not like you you were almost like the destruction, but you are them in the way that you're living. The very system that God put in place, in fact, is being abused. God is judging them for their sins, and, and now he judges them for their worship. The problem wasn't the system. The problem was this missing element of heart and devotion and obedience, which is shaped by the heart and the devotion with their covenant God. His people here are assuming that merely offering these sacrifices at the altar, they would be made ceremonially clean, even though their life showed no heart change. They're going through the motions. This is empty ritual. It's heartless worship. And God's people cannot continue to coast with vain, rote, going through the motions because it flat out equals empty worship. And none of us can really say that, well, I'm immune from that. I could never get there. None of us should be saying words like that. We have to understand how, how fragile we are, how weak we are, how we do fall into rote and ritual, casually approaching God, casually approaching our life in God, The external might look right, but the internal is what God is looking at, and he sees it. We can't fool him. We can't play with him. So here to God in verse 11, not even the multitude of sacrifices 
is what he wants. He's had enough of those. He even tells him to stop bringing vain offerings. Talk about exhausted and exasperated. This is God speaking about his own people. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Isaiah 29, 13. Even incense is an abomination. God is nauseated. Even, verses 13 and 14, the feast, they have become a burden. It is a weary, it's a wearying thing for God. He has had enough. He says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. They're carrying out with their hearts this hypocrisy, living in disobedience, playing worship, and all this has become obnoxious to God. He's exasperated. These gifts are worthless. Their incense is an abomination. Their worship services were evil. This is what offends God is hollowed out worship, heartless worship. Worship that lacks the acknowledgement of sin, repentance, and coming with this proper frame of, I am in need of mercy. I'm always in need of mercy. And just being flat out in awe of that condition that we are in and then the redeemed state that Christ brings us. So yeah, this is dismal. And then God goes even further. He says in verse 15, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because, the end of verse 15, your hands are full of blood, dripping from these sacrifices. Dripping with the guilt of a heartless worship. They lifted up their hands and the guilt of this blood, of the rote, empty, vain sacrifices that they're offering. God said, I will not hear you. Externally, again, everything was right. They were doing everything externally the way it was supposed to be done. It looked proper. It looked fitting. It was the prescribed way. The system wasn't broken. Their heart was broken. Their obedience was lacking. This is a dire situation. Disobedience, treating their relationship with God as casual, lethargic, apathetic attitude, selfishly living as if God is not even present, living with a complete disregard of the fear of the Lord. Internally is exactly what God saw, and he saw that they have forsaken him. So God's case against Judah, their desperate condition, and then God's rejection of their worship leads to this uh, ending section here, verses 16 through 20, a time to reason. Uh, So before we get to actually the the words that are calling them to come to reason, let me just read here verses 16 and 17. God is going to give, and I wish we had time to to jump into all this, but he's going to give nine imperatives in just these two verses. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. These are expectations. This is how they were supposed to live out their covenant life with God. He says here, it starts with with cleansing. God is demanding here an internal change of heart. That's the solution to vain worship. So the prophet is persuasively and forcingly, uh, in a forcefully way, uh, calling his listeners to change the way they live, clearly a call of repentance. True worship is only possible from a changed heart. Obedience flows out of a repentant heart that has been changed by God. Always flowing out of that work of grace in us, not coming from ourselves sourced in our own strength or ability because we actually honestly don't have that ability. All this leads then to verse 18. Uh, And of course, we've already seen it. It can appear, our worship can appear externally to be right. And at the same time, when it's without the heart, when it's heartless, 
it can actually be unacceptable. And that's why it leads to this verse 18. And I want to just clarify a few things as we read this, after we read this. This is the third imperative that really jumps off in this passage where it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Then he gives this condition in verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Again, that's the bookend. As he said in the beginning, this is the word of the Lord. So he ends by this statement that basically says, eat or be eaten. Repent or be destroyed, is what he's really saying. Now, the Hebrew behind uh, this verse 18, this invitation is usually the way that we read it. This is a tricky phrase, a tricky sentence or two grammatically. This could be a a straight-out invitation, an offer, with those conditions that are stated in verse 19. That the, The cleansing will happen if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. Verse 18 could also be looked at as irony, forcing the audience, the listeners, to to admit their guilt, to confess, and get to that place of true repentance. So this could be saying, let's determine the truth, let's settle this. He's already pointed out that they actually don't have the ability to reason. Even the ox and the donkey have have a better understanding of their master. They have a better ability to reason. There is no reasoning. The reasoning is, o- is over for them. Uh, some translations, in, in fact, say, come, let's consider your options. We, we don't have any. We can't continue in this way, and we have no ability to get out of that. This is so much like Romans 3, in fact. And I would have to say, Stop, think of my own heart right now. Consider the options that I have. In my sin, apart from Christ, I stand guilty. I have no case. I have no defense. This text utterly destroys us, just like Romans chapter 3. However, it went to God's work of redemption, God's work of justification And I think this invitation, and even if it's brought to us in irony, it's going to say the same thing. So the irony could be saying here, if your sins are like scarlet, which they are, how in the world are they going to be white as snow? If they're red like crimson, which they are, how are they going to be white as wool? How? How does this happen? They have no case before a holy God. The the heavens and the earth have heard this case, they've heard the accusations, they've, they've seen that this is a strong case that the Lord presents, and their rituals, their sacrifices, they're all worthless because they're coming at them without a heart, a heart that is far from God. God doesn't even want to hear their prayers at this point. He says, bring no more vain offerings. So the invitation, come and reason, sounds like there's some reasoning to be done. However, these accusations are clear clear that there is nothing really they in and of themselves can really do. So rather than continue in their incomprehension, the people are urged to consider thoughtfully their actual position before a holy God. This verse 18, I believe, is saying, wake up and face the truth of your position before a holy God. Wake up and consider where is your heart. The truth of the gospel needs to penetrate every one of us in Christ, apart from Christ. The truth of the gospel has to penetrate our hearts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. As we get to even this point of of chapter 1, we have to be asking, they would be asking, in, in fact, how can I then be washed? How can my guilt be taken away? Who can change my heart? So this is an invitation brought with irony, I believe, 
It can be both and, an invitation, but also irony. How in the world are you going to get right? How are we going to take these sins that you're covered in this blood, guilt, how are we going to make them white as snow, white as wool? It's time for them to evaluate their condition. God gave them the diagnosis of their heart, and now we're seeing don't ignore your condition, don't trust in your religion, and don't reject the provision. God was the one who would provide. One, one passage, Isaiah 59, he, he repeats this throughout the book, but very clearly, Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 3. Uh, and then I'll, I'll add a couple of other verses, 16 and 20. Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation be- between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Talk about the separation of God. When we sin, we are separated from God. He has hidden his face. He, he doesn't hear us because of that. He says, goes on in verse 3, For your hands are defiled with blood. Again, saying the same thing that he says here in, in chapter 1. And your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Then in verse 16, it, it goes on after that, but jumping to where God is the answer. He is the provision. He saw that there was no man. This is God speaking. He saw that there is no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him, Israel, salvation. His own arm, verse 16, brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. In verse 20 of Isaiah 59, and a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. God shows over and over through the Old Testament, through this message of Isaiah, He shows over and over that He is their only answer. He is the provision. So don't ignore your condition, don't trust your religion, and don't reject your provision. God is challenging us. Even the ox and the donkey know what's right here. God's people are closed to it. So this invitation, let's reason with that element of irony. It's a time for you to agree with me, God is saying, about your condition. It's a time for you to confess and turn to me. The heart was missing and confession was the only logical step, which would of course lead to repentance, turning away from that life that they were living, turning away from that vain worship, that empty worship. One of the greatest evidences of true conversion is not sinless perfection. Every one of us knows that. Otherwise, we're hopeless. Instead, it is the sensitivity to sin, the transparency before God regarding sin, and open and continual confession of sin. Don't ignore your condition. Don't trust in your religion, the things that we do. Don't reject your provision. This world is coming after us, and we cannot be apathetic. We can't be lethargic in our approach to God. There's no time for casual with God. Genuine life of dependence on God, genuinely going to the gospel over and over, declaring it, showing it, living it. Because we have the answer, we have the provision in Christ. So if we're going to be an effective witness in the world, if we're going to live with humility and and treasure Jesus before a culture that is against us, if we're going to make the gospel visible to those around us through our deeds, through through our, our words, through our declaration of the gospel, if we're going to train up our children to be Christ followers no matter what they face, if we're going to serve and love and endure, it starts here having a heart that is bent towards God through confession and repentance. Not just one time, it's continual. And agreeing with him about every aspect of the gospel. It is an exhausting and uh, uh, exasperating time to, to live in this world. 
to raise families, to navigate the, the twisted morals of the world that we live in. And as a body, together, we need to be saturated with the truths of the gospel, saturated to the point of overflowing, so that our lives are marked by humility, confession, repentance, faith. And through our life, through our discipleship, through our witness, we will make known the name of Christ. Many of you may be thinking, why does this matter? Uh, You're talking to the choir. Well, choir, listen. This is the word for us as well. The choir needs to hear these words. This may not be a comforting message for, for many of you. There may be some who maybe don't even realize it, but you've been going through the motions. There may be some that who are using religious behavior as a means of manipulating God, trying to get what we want out of God for our own benefit. Maybe ones who are just focused on these externals, the way I look on the outside, but God sees the inside. He knows every one of us. He knows our motives, our intentions. He knows our heart. There may be some here that maybe have not even trusted Christ yet. This is a time where we need to really take inventory of where our heart is as we hear this word. And I think all of us need to be encouraged and challenged, in fact, with the gospel itself. If you can see that, I'm not sure if the print is too small, but Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 is is fitting for us to not end there at that point of, of the invitation but to actually see this redemption that we have through the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as our high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered it once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and a sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. One person makes all of this possible. He is our provision. The only solution is to come to Christ and trust Him. His perfect righteousness, His perfect sacrifice. Though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Through Christ. So as I said in the beginning, my sacrificial life of worship will only go as deep as my amazement in Christ And his work of redemption seen in the depths of the glory of the gospel. It'll only be seen in my amazement. My sacrificial life of worship. Mercies should not grow stale. They should not become common to us. And if they have, we need to look and gaze on Christ over and over. This will only come from the work of our triune God who works in perfect unity for this purpose to create in me a genuine heart of humility shaped by continual faith and repentance as I am jolted out of my casual, lethargic, apathetic approach to Yahweh. By the power of His Word, He does this as He blinds me, blinds us with the light of His glorious nature. My prayer is that we will be saturated with the glory of God in His grace and mercy and that completed work of Christ. We will be saturated with it to the point of overflowing into our life, our witness, our worship, our declaration of this gospel. Don't ignore our condition. Don't trust in our religion, the things that we do, and don't reject our provision. We reject that by apathy, by casually approaching God with this ho-hum attitude. 
I pray that this, this chapter, these few passages, shake us up, awaken our souls to that provision that we have in Christ. And that we would be honest here this morning with where is my heart? Have I fallen in or am I falling into that practice of ritual, roteness, apathy, casually approaching God? Let's pray. Lord, you are amazing, holy, merciful. Lord, we need your help to see the depths of the truth of the case against us because we are none of that. In our sin, our our rebellion, our, our casual way we approach you, will you help us to see the depths of the truth of that case, the against us, our inability, and the grace that you've shown me in Christ. Will you make our hearts respond in worship by giving us the awe that we need, giving us the truth that we need to bow before you in humility, that you would show us over and over in your word the glory of Christ through the gospel as you put your rich mercy on display before us. Lord, we want to turn our eyes to you over and over because you are our provision, you are our satisfaction, you are the sufficient one who made the perfect one-time sacrifice that would never be made again. The blood was on our hands, but you came, and by the blood of Christ, you washed us clean. You made us white as snow. We stand before you as forgiven and redeemed, still broken, but forgiven and redeemed. We thank you for the righteousness of Christ that is on our account. We thank you for your completed work of justification. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do your work in us, that we would be the witnesses that you want us to be in this world, this darkness. We would show that our treasure, our provision is Christ and him alone. He is more important than anything to us. Lord, will you center our hearts center our, heart, our eyes on you alone. Thank you for your word today. I thank you for your work that you continue to do in all of our hearts. Again, it's for your glory to make you known, to show your greatness that others may know. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.